The following sermon is from the Westminster Pulpit, extending the worship ministry of Westminster Presbyterian Church, Lancaster, Pennsylvania. We are a local congregation of the Presbyterian Church in America. Please contact us for permission before reproducing this message in any format. So now if you would please turn your Bible to Psalm 119. And uh, for a while now, I've been interested in this psalm. Of course, it's the largest of the psalms and the longest chapter in the entire Bible. It's kind of the Amazon River of psalms. It's 22 stanzas of eight verses each. Verse of each stanza begins with the same letter of the Hebrew alphabet in succession. Uh, It's uh, something called an acrostic poem. It gives structure and guidance uh, to the psalmist. Uh, But for brevity's sake, we're not going to cover the whole psalm. We'll just cover the first 16 verses, the first two stanzas, the A's and the B's of this psalm. But we hope to glean from the whole psalm the, the rich reservoir of biblical wisdom that we find in it. In many ways, this psalm is a love song to God's word. To God's law. This psalmist is enraptured with the Word of God. He loves God's law, as we just sung about a moment ago. Now, we need to be careful lest we restrict ourselves in our own minds, the, a purely legal sense of the word law. In fact, there are at least eight words here that are synonyms of the word law ordinance, statutes, commands, and taken as a whole, these speak to all of Scripture all of the written revelation of God. Now, one more warning we need to be careful about is to not take from this psalmist the conclusion that he is somehow worshiping the word of God. Rather, he invites us to join him in worshiping the God who has revealed himself both in the word written and in the word incarnate, our Lord Jesus Christ. Please Follow as I read Psalm 119, verses 1 through 16. Blessed are they whose ways are blameless, who walk according to the law of the Lord. Blessed are they who keep his statutes and seek him with all their heart. They do nothing wrong. They walk in his ways. You have laid down precepts that are to be fully obeyed. Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. I will obey your decrees. Do not utterly forsake me. How can a young man keep his way pure? By living according to your word. I seek you with all my heart. Do not let me stray from your commands. I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Praise be to you, O Lord. Teach me your decrees. With my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I rejoice in following your statutes, as one rejoices in great riches. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. I delight in your decrees. I will not neglect 
your word. This is the holy and inspired word of God. Let us pray. Father, you have graciously and richly showed us much kindness by revealing yourself, your acts and history, your gracious work of redemption through this, your word. As we consider this psalm tonight, we would ask that you would illumine our minds and our hearts. And I pray that the words of my mouth and that the meditations of all of our hearts be pleasing in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. My wife, Stacy and I have preserved a number of handwritten letters that we wrote to one another back in our dating and courtship days. These letters will probably be under lock and key in years to come to keep out of the eyesight of our children. You know, as I think about just even 14 years ago, before the onset of email and texting, I, it makes me sad that so many young lovers today miss out on the joy of handwriting letters to one another, falling prey to the far too convenient usage of electronic communication. My wife and I continue to preserve our tradition of handwriting notes to one another, our birthdays, our greeting card holidays, in order to express our love and affection and affirmation to one another, that we might encourage one another and affirm one another in the Lord. The Word of God is, in many ways, God's love letter to his people. The cosmic lover, driven by nothing lacking in and of himself, but a simple and passionate desire to magnify his own glory and to bestow his goodness upon his people who have been made in his image. The Word of God is a gift, a written verbal communication of who God is and how he has acted in time, space, and history. The Word of God is understandable, translatable, transferable across all cultures and throughout all ages. What we find here in Psalm 119 is a response letter. A love song of perhaps a, like a woman responding to her lover's gracious initiative whereby she can praise him and declare his wonderful qualities. You know, no one needs to tell a young couple in love to delight in one another. A young couple growing in a, a young relationship does not need to be taught how to communicate one, with one another, to spend time together. They don't need to be encouraged to defer one another and present their best before one another. The natural state of the new and exciting affection. The joy of knowing and being known by the significant other is enough to sustain them. Now those of us who have been married for a while know that those early inflamed passions of young love begin to simmer over the years. And the healthy maintenance of marital love requires effort and intentionality. 
I think many of you can relate by way of comparison to your own pilgrimage, your walk of faith with the Lord. I myself grew up in a very nominal Christian home where I neglected my spiritual heritage until God got my attention about the junior, my junior year of high school. The immediate effect of my conversion to Christ was an insatiable desire to know the Bible and to know the God of the Bible. I studied God's word voraciously. I kept many journals whereby I kept copious notes of things I was learning from the scriptures. But as time wore on, entropy set in. As I began to diminish in my young, early passion, studying God's word became work, a matter of discipline. And I went through seasons of neglect, making excuses that I was busy, presumptuous that I already had enough knowledge of the scriptures. Until I was reconvicted by a passionate preacher who helped me get back on track into God's word again. I think all genuine Christians can look upon their walk of faith and find a similar pattern. Seeing the ebb and the flow of hungry and thirsting for God's righteousness, seasons of feasting and famine, deluge and drought. Well, just as a husband can neglect and take for granted the wife of his youth, so we too can fail to appreciate our ongoing desperate need for God's presence in the ministry of his word. This psalm is a call to return to our first love. It grounds us back upon a firm foundation. It restores our center of gravity when we go off out of orbit. It centers all of our spiritual sensibilities back upon the word of God the primary source by which we may know the God of the Word. The opening four verses express the blessedness of the man or woman who abides in the Lord their God and obeys his word. It's an echo back to Psalm 1, where it says, Blessed or happy is the man or woman who is blameless. The psalmist, I believe, invites us to just imagine... Imagine an existence without the guilt of sin. Can you imagine life with no pain of regret? Without experiencing any fear of the consequences of your poor choices. Now the writer here is not a guilt monger. But rather is challenging us to consider what it must be like to walk in the ways of God's law, like Adam did in the garden, untainted by corruption. Blessed are they who keep God's statutes, who seek him with all of their heart. The greatest command is to love the Lord your God with all of your heart. Obedience is not a mechanical function. It's a matter of personal relationship. He goes on to express in verse 3 that these who walk in God's ways do no wrong. They walk in his ways like Enoch, the man whom the Lord took 
to spare him further suffering in a fallen world. And then verse 4 addresses God himself, acknowledging that he commanded his precepts to be diligently obeyed. God, like a wise and good parent, lays down the expectations. Here are the rules. Here's what I call for you to do in response. Well, as we look at the human condition and we consider our own hearts, if we're honest, we have to acknowledge that our problem with God's law is not primarily one of ignorance. The modern teaching that all man needs is better education is a false one. The word of God declares that the law of God is written on the human heart. As I read earlier from Psalm 19, the heavens declare the very righteousness of of God. No, our fault lies not in ignorance, but in culpable neglect. That which the critics accuse BP Oil and their partners and the government agencies who have a responsibility for the Gulf oil spill. Like their spokesman, we too feign innocence, ignorance. We blame shift and all too often follow the path of rebellion, worshiping after false gods like our forefathers, claim for ourselves a kind of moral exceptionalism. One of my favorite animated films is the Pixar movie Finding Nemo. Those of you who've seen it remember the story of the young clownfish who's struggling to get out from under the oppressive, fearful control of his paranoid father. And in one fitting scene, young Nemo strays away from the safety of the Great Barrier Reef. He takes on a dare to go out to a boat and flap the bottom of the boat with a flipper in direct defiance against his father's authority. Having done the deed, Nemo smugly returns back to the crowd, but is cut short. For that very moment, he is captured by a diver, which sets off the great crisis and great adventure by which his father must come to his rescue. Friends, you and I are like little Nemo. We bristle in our fallen condition against the law of God. We resist his authority over us. In our pride, we want to be a law unto ourselves. We choose the path of self-reliance rather than submission. And yet, like Nemo, our rebellion is more than we bargained for, getting us into all kinds of trouble and separates us from the Father. And like Nemo, we long to be rescued, to be reconciled with the Father, who alone can bring us home again. Children are apt to defy the rules, to test the boundaries of their parents. As I've observed this in my children, I begin to observe 
and understand that in many ways there's an underlying question in the attitude and behavior of my children. Does mom or dad really love me enough to stand in my way? Are they strong enough to actually stop me from doing this? Where is the limit? And many children will test it. Well, children learn obedience in the context of a loving relationship with their parents who know better and love them. Likewise, the law of God, the written word, cannot be understood and received beyond the context of a loving relationship with our great God. You see, even as the psalmist writes this psalm, it's in a proper context. Dating back even to the law of Moses, the law was given after redemption from Egypt. It's only after the people have been saved and delivered from their bondage that the law was given to them. You see, we cannot understand God as creator and lawgiver until we first know him as redeemer and loving Heavenly Father. And just as this psalmist wrote this law, expression of praise on his side of redemption, on this side of the great act of redemption in the Old Testament. So you and I receive the law and the word of God on this side of redemption, the cross of Jesus Christ. We can only understand and embrace the law of God as we come to embrace the cross and work of Jesus Christ. And so it's with that that we can begin to wrestle with how do we struggle in our human condition with the righteous demands of God's law. Well, look now at verses 5 and 6. These verses express the psalmist's heart yearning both to do right but acknowledging his repeated failings to come up short. He says, Oh, that my ways were steadfast in obeying your decrees. Then I would not be put to shame when I consider all your commands. And while this confession lacks the the boldness and candidness of David's penitent psalms, it nevertheless expresses a longing for consistent obedience. There's almost an angst of the overwhelming nature of God's law. It anticipates the writings, I believe, of Paul, who in a much in a very helpful and very intense expression, reveals his own struggle with the law candidly in Romans chapter 7. The former zealous Pharisee writes, For I have the desire to do what is good, but I cannot carry it out. He goes on to say that in his inner being, he delights in God's law, and yet he finds this war waging in his mind and his heart between the workings of the flesh and the working of the Holy Spirit within him. That battle is present in every genuine follower of Jesus Christ. There is a war raging within us. The struggle for dominance between the flesh and the spirit. 
And yet what Psalm 119 only hints at, Romans 7 makes abundantly clear. When Paul cries out in anguish, Who will rescue me from this body of death? Thanks be to God, through Jesus Christ our Lord. It's only in the person and work of Jesus Christ. The one who achieved the impossible, who accomplished what you and I cannot do by living a perfect life of obedience, by dying a death of satisfaction and atonement, bearing the punishment that you and I deserve for our law-breaking, and in that great work reconciling us to the Father. Romans 7 ends with a word of praise to God. Likewise, the psalmist in 119 verse 7 says, I will praise you with an upright heart as I learn your righteous laws. You see, a, a genuine encounter with God's law leads to worship. The law confronts us in our frail human condition our corruption as fallen creatures. And it convicts us of how far we have fallen short of the Lord's glory and the holy standards of a righteous God. And it drives us. In our desperation, the heart revived by the grace of God cries out with childlike dependence and desire to please our Father in heaven. All too often, professing Christians put on a kind of facade, living a life that's moral, but in many ways keeping their own version of a truncated moral code. We all too often bear the likeness of the rich young ruler, the young man who came to Jesus asking how he might inherit eternal life, confirming that he had kept all of the Ten Commandments since he was a youth, blind, and failing to, be, failing to be crushed and humbled by his own weakness and inability. You see, law righteousness, self-righteousness, is a seductive and subtle thing that blinds us from the true nature of of the law and the hope that we have in the gospel. The biblical law is not an attainable standard by which we might be acceptable and right before God. Paul's battle expressed in Romans 7 gives us the only resolve that we might fall on our knees before the throne of grace and beg the Lord for mercy. Ephesians 2, 8 and 9 says, For it is by grace... You have been saved through faith, and this not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one may boast. The law gives no room for boasting in and of ourselves. Rather, the purpose of the law is expressed elsewhere in Galatians chapter 3. The purpose of the law is to drive us, to shepherd us to Christ. Paul uses there the image of a guardian, a a tutor in the ancient world who was used by the father and the landowner to discipline his son 
so that he would do his schoolwork and learn his lessons. Likewise, the age of the law was guiding God's people to maturity, to embrace Christ, to enjoy the freedom of knowing Christ and him crucified. And yet John, that Jesus will still say in John chapter 14, on the very eve of his crucifixion, telling his disciples, if you love me, you will obey my commands. You see, obedience is not a matter of dry law-keeping, as it is in the religion of Islam. Rather, obedience is a matter of personal seeking after the great lawgiver and giving him your whole heart. In our Reformed tradition, we, we have classically embraced a kind of threefold use of the law. That the law of God, first of all, is kind of, serves as a societal restraint to provide order in society. Secondly, it has an evangelistic edge to convict us of sin and drive us to the cross. But we in the Calvinistic tradition would affirm a third use of the law, which is useful for guidance, moral instruction, and doing the law of God. I see it in our remaining verses of the second stanza. In terms of training us in the word, as well as incarnating the word of God. Verse 9 asks, How can a young man keep his way pure? Seems impossible in the decadent age in which we live. Sexual immorality, vulgarity, compromise of moral character, vice of all kinds are thrust upon our young people who are overly influenced by the world, the flesh, and the devil. But I like the answer the psalmist gives. By living according to your word. Deuteronomy 6, the famous Shema of Israel, paints this picture of the word of God saturating all of the life of the covenant home. Then you're going in, you're coming out, when you get up in the morning, when you go to bed in the evening, that the word of God should be at the forefront of your mind, your heart, and your lips. We're called to saturate our households, to provide a shelter in the word of God. But as parents know all too well, we cannot shelter our children forever. They must grow up and own and take responsibility for themselves to respond to God's word. I find in myself no greater motivation to moral purity than the obligation I have to model for my children, to govern my life as a way of instruction for them. So I ask us a couple of questions tonight for parents, for leaders in the church, for servants, who work with children and others. Does our commitment to worship, corporately, individually, as a family, does it demonstrate the priority of worship over all of life, over work, over recreation? Our lifestyle, the way we spend our time and money, is a powerful teacher. 
And if children see an inconsistency with what we profess to believe on Sundays and the way we live throughout the week, they're very likely to throw off the teachings of the church and to go the way of the culture towards further secular materialistic consumption. Our marriages and our vital relationships with people in the church are to be an expression of God's love and grace and is a place in, in our most intimate relationships where we expressed before others, whether we take God at his word or whether we're willing to compromise with the ways of the world. Verses 10 and 11 take us back to remind us that the law is a matter of the heart. You know, what we want in the church for not only our children, but all God's people, we want believers, not behaviors. We want possessors, not mere professors. Verse 10 says, I seek you with all my heart. The law is but a tool to get us to the goal of knowing God. He goes on to pray, do not let me stray from your commands. Sheep wander without a shepherd. Do you acknowledge with the testimony of scripture that you are a sheep? That you are by nature a wanderer. That you are in desperate need of a good shepherd who will protect you from the enemy. Who will feed you and give you pure nourishment. Verse 11 goes on to declare, I have hidden your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. You know, last night I set my alarm clock so that I would not oversleep this morning. A few weeks ago, I changed the oil in my car so that it would continue to run well. These past several weeks, I've been setting out ant traps to keep the ants out of our kitchen. And I only set it out during the nighttime and put it up during the daytime so that my one-year-old will not come upon it and harm himself. We live in a world of cause and effect. And God has given us a preventative measure against sin. And it's called the study and the appropriation of God's word. The psalm is calling upon us to have our thinking ingrained with God's word, to have it seep into the very attitudes of our heart, to build up our resistance against sin. It's not teaching moral perfectionism. We know that we will not be made perfect until glory. We will continue to struggle with sin. But for any of us who take seriously the biblical calling to hate sin and to love righteousness has to take seriously the call to study and to meditate upon and memorize God's word. Verses 13 and 15 reiterate this very point. When he says, my lip, with my lips I recount all the laws that come from your mouth. I meditate on your precepts and consider your ways. Recall, after Moses died, the Lord said to Joshua, Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. 
Go to the large bookstores. Go to Amazon.com and you will find no end to books that promise you success and prosperity. None of them can deliver like this can. I testify to the truth that allowing Scripture to penetrate your mind and heart, to memorize it and study it, does lead to prosperity in God's sight and does equip you and assist you in times of distress. My wife and I, when we go through trials together, and even recently as I've been called upon by the Lord to come alongside my wife, battling various anxieties and fears, we pray together, we talk together, and in recent times it's been impressed upon me as I struggle in my own helplessness to fix the problem. Men can identify with that. I realize that what I have to offer her, to my children, to other people in distress, is sharing with them the word of God. Benefiting from the years of working to memorize God's word. To allow the spirit to lead me to quote scripture in a way that is timely and appropriate to minister to people struggling with fears doubts, seemingly impossible problems. The Word of God has power to minister to us in our times of greatest need. Lastly, in verses 14 and 16, we find the psalmist rejoicing and delighting. He says, I rejoice in following your statutes as one rejoices in great riches. I delight in your decrees. Jesus told the parables of the man who came upon a hidden, buried treasure and went off to sell all of his possessions and returned to purchase that land that he might gain possession of that great treasure. The story of the merchant who came upon a pearl of great price and value, and he went off to sell everything he had to acquire and purchase that great pearl. Colossians 2 says that in Jesus are all is, is, is in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. As we look back over this psalm, we realize that only Jesus can confess these words with perfect integrity. It was Jesus who delighted to do the will of his Father in heaven. He says that it was his food, his very life and sustenance to do the will of the one who had sent him. And Jesus was fully equipped to defend himself, to guide his disciples, to teach them from the word of his Father. It says in Hebrews that for the joy set before him, he endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. Friends, when you and I encounter the Word of God, it becomes living and active like a sharp, double-edged sword. And when we immerse ourselves in God's Word, we come to know the Word incarnate. The Word made flesh amongst us. You see, love for God's Word leads to worship of the one who 
is the lawgiver and the one who is the law keeper in our place. Scripture describes King David as the singer of Israel, and he's the author of perhaps half of our psalms. I point out that Psalm 119 is anonymous. We don't know who wrote it, but what I would like to call it is the love song of the Savior. This is the song that Jesus sings. This is the song that our Savior sings on our behalf. He alone can sing this perfectly, beautifully, in tune with God Almighty, with our Heavenly Father. Zephaniah 3.17 says that the Lord, our God, is with you. He is mighty to save. He will take great delight in you. He will quiet you with his love. He will rejoice over you with singing. Friends, we have a singing Savior, one who has given us his word in song, who invites us to turn away from the love songs of this age, that sing a different tune, that are narcissistic, that are idolatrous, that are self-consuming, and invites us to sing with him a song of praise, a life lived in unison with the will of God. You see, this love song becomes ours as the Savior who sings over us invites us to abide with him and join with him in singing praise to our God and to live lives of praise. So I exhort you tonight to make it your song. Let the word of God become your lifelong companion to lead you in his sweet intimacy with God our Father and his Son, Jesus Christ, for all eternity. Let us pray. Gracious God, you who have revealed yourself in your word, you who sing over us and delight in us, invite us to call you Father to embrace your song and to respond to your loving initiative. We thank you. We praise you. We ask that you might renew us, that you might rekindle in us that flame of fire and passion to respond to your loving initiative and to seek after you and know you, to follow you and to obey your commands, and that Jesus Christ may be glorified in us and through us all of our days. In his name we do pray. Amen.